Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This podcast contains adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. Perjury in a murder case is a class A felony. It's as serious as it gets. So when we're talking class A felonies, what what kind of like prison or or punishment consequences are we looking at? Uh, In Missouri, if you're convicted of a class A felony, the range of punishment is a minimum of 10 years and a maximum of either 30 years or a life sentence. about lies, shall we? It's been a minute since I published an episode on the Michelle Lawless case, but I've been piecing together research. Even though I've been looking into other cases, Michelle's case is still top of mind for me. For several months, something has been nagging, and that is the number of falsehoods and lies told in Michelle's murder trial against Josh Kieser and really throughout the entire investigation. Let me take that back. It's not just the falsehoods and the lies that have gotten under my skin the last few months. It's the lack of accountability for those lies and those falsehoods. Josh Kieser entered the prison system in March of 1993, an 18-year-old kid who at first had no idea why he was being hauled across state lines by police. He thought it was over an assault case in Sykeston, an incident he knew never involved a gun or anything rising to the level of felony assault. Josh was sentenced for a murder he did not commit. By 2009, 16 years later, Kieser, a grown man, was released from prison after an actual innocence ruling. As I've laid out through the entire 20-plus episodes of Season 1, there's little doubt in my mind that Kieser was not put in prison by accident. Not only was Josh's conviction a serious miscarriage of justice, not only is law enforcement's lack of investigational curiosity a serious miscarriage of justice, so too is a lack of accountability for all the lies that sent Josh Kieser to prison. No one has paid a price for what they did to Josh. Josh did win a settlement in a civil lawsuit against Scott County, which specifically names Bill Farrell and Brenda Shivitz. Some people think that's justice for Josh. But not a penny of that settlement came out of Farrell and Shivitz's pocket. Not a single person has been held accountable for Josh's false incarceration. And I'm here today with this episode to talk about that. Because you know what? There's this thing called perjury. It's against the law to lie under oath. And as we're about to find out, when you lie under oath in a murder case, the penalty is harsh. I wanted to examine the perjury law in Missouri because it occurred to me as I studied the case, there seems to be a stronger case for perjury than there is for murder. I called and talked to two legal experts about this law and the parameters for perjury. We'll be hearing from one of them later in this episode. But before we get into the analysis, let's review some of the people who told lies during Josh Kieser's trial. First, there's the snitches. Some of them in Cape Girardeau County Jail lied about Josh's so-called confession at a party they were at at Stacy Reed's apartment. Another lied about a confession in jail. Josh never confessed ever to killing Michelle Lawless. And how do we know that? How do we know these people lied? Because they all confessed at one time or another that he didn't confess. Two of the snitches tried to recant before the trial started. Two snitches said they made up the story for leniency. At least one said he felt pressured by the sheriff to make up a story because he didn't know what would happen if he didn't. 
That snitch in jail for first degree murder was Wade Howard. If you remember, he worked out a deal and had his first degree charges lowered. He got leniency, a lot of leniency, and they all lied, every single one of them. Then there's Mark Abbott. He's the most obvious person I've thought about when it comes to possible perjury charges. He's told a lot of lies, and we'll review some of them in a minute. For those who haven't listened to all the episodes, Mark Abbott is the person who put Josh near the scene of the murder, but he lied about that. And how do we know he lied about that? Because he said he did. Mark Abbott has told so many falsehoods or incorrect statements, he's the number one suspect in Michelle Lawless's murder. Is there evidence he pulled the trigger? No. Other than his own confessions. The Lawless case is complicated when it comes to prosecuting Mark Abbott or the other suspect, Kevin Williams, or both, for murder. At the top of the list of those complications is Leon Lamb, Michelle's on-and-off boyfriend, with whom she'd had a sexual encounter an hour or so before she was found dead in her car. Leon's DNA was found under Michelle's fingernails, a decidedly inconvenient fact for Leon, who remains a suspect, even though, as the evidence shows, Michelle was almost certainly killed by at least two people, not one. So there are reasons why past and current prosecutors have not filed murder charges against Mark Abbott. I think Leon Lamb and some other issues regarding hearsay and and so forth are reasons why past and current prosecutors have not filed murder charges against Mark Abbott, even though there is physical and circumstantial evidence as well as confessions to multiple people that cast plenty of suspicion on Mark Abbott. Still, murder is not a slam dunk case. I understand that. But what about perjury charges? I believe a case can be made that a perjury charge might be easier to prove than murder charges as it relates to Mark Abbott. So let's go over some of the lies and false statements that Mark Abbott made. One. Abbott said he saw rings on Michelle's hands, which is how he knew the victim was female. In the trial, he specifically said there was a ring on her index finger. This is a false statement. There were no rings on Michelle's hands when responders arrived. The victim normally wore several rings, but those rings were all found in her console. This statement was made on a recording to a law enforcement officer who signed his report with a badge number. It's not just a falsehood, but it's also a signal that Mark Abbott may have known the victim. Two. Abbott said in court, after returning to the crime scene because he was curious about what was going on, he went directly to Heather Pierce's house. This was a direct contradiction to what he told Chief Deputy Tom Beardsley the morning after the murder when he said he went, quote, straight here to the house, unquote, at his home in Scott City. For what it's worth, investigative reports I've seen quote a source who said Mark Abbott went home to clean up before heading to Pierce's house in Cape Girardeau. Three. Abbott identified Josh Keezer as the person he saw driving a white car at a payphone while Abbott was allegedly trying to use the phone to call 911. However, investigative records show that Abbott first identified the man in the car at the payphone as Ray Ring. This was long before he identified Josh Keezer as the man in that car. Ring, a mixed-race man, was friends with Michelle's ex-boyfriend, Lyle Day. This statement was taken by a Scott City officer, which included the officer's signature, which was analyzed by a handwriting expert. Abbott claims that the officer who took that report, Bobby Wooten, was lying in his report. In the report, Abbott said he met Ring at a party in Sykeston earlier that night. However, the tip led to two other officers interviewing Ring a day after Wooten's report. Abbott's false ID of Keezer was the only evidence the state had that Josh was in the state of Missouri the night of the murder. In 2008, under oath, Abbott said it would be a lie to state that he was sure that Keezer was the man he saw in the car at the payphone. Abbott said his belief about Keezer's identification was reinforced by the behaviors of law enforcement. Four. Abbott testified to the jury that Josh was driving a white Dodge Duster when originally he told police that the car was a Saab or possibly other models, none of which were a Duster. Five. Abbott said the windows of Michelle's car were all the way down. This is a false statement. He said the window was down. And that was how he reached in and pulled Michelle up from a resting position across the console. The window was rolled only halfway down. Several officers and first responders said under oath or in signed reports the window's position. 
Abbott made the statement about pulling up Michelle under oath on multiple occasions. 6. Abbott said he pulled Michelle up by the shoulder and let her go after being spooked by the presence of blood on her face. DNA evidence shows that Mark touched Michelle in a place impossible to explain by his court testimony. Also, multiple crime reconstructionists willing to testify refute Abbott's testimony that he pulled Michelle up as he explained to officers to the jury. One reconstructionist said it was impossible for Abbott to have reached through the window, which was halfway up, and pulled up Michelle. Another reconstructionist claimed Michelle could not have slumped over and fallen in the same position with the bullet entrance wound in her arm perfectly aligned with the exit wound in her chest. Reconstructionists also added that had Michelle been pulled up as explained, then there would have been a larger presence of blood on her neck and back of her shirt. 7. Abbott told witness Ron Burton at a fishing cabin that, quote, I took care of that bitch, unquote, when Burton asked him about the trial which sent Josh Kieser to prison. Burton made this statement under oath in 2008, but Abbott claimed under oath that Burton was lying. 8. Abbott told a prison mate that he shot a girl in the head who, quote, was working for the sheriff, unquote. This witness has so far not testified under oath, but has talked to previous investigators who have signed this information to reports. 9. Abbott told police and the courts that he never knew Michelle Lawless, but one witness has told investigators that Abbott was secretly dating Michelle, but he was keeping a secret from his girlfriend, who was Melissa Williams, the sister of Kevin Williams, another suspect. This information was contained in a probable cause statement provided by Rick Walter to a former prosecutor. Other sources and witnesses have stated to media outlets, including the Lawless Files, that Michelle was attracted to the twins or was planning to date one of them. 10. Mark Abbott made a statement to a law enforcement officer that he saw Kevin Williams shoot Michelle Lawless. This happened in 1997. While in prison, Mark Abbott made this statement to Bill Bonert, who was a narcotics agent at the time. Bonert did not retain a copy of the original report, but he has testified under oath about what Abbott said to him in the jail. Abbott says Bonert is lying. 11. Kevin Williams told witness Kathy Fowler, among others, that Mark Abbott was responsible for Michelle's murder. Fowler has testified to this under oath. Obviously, if Mark Abbott was responsible for her murder, he would have motive to lie about his interaction with Michelle the night of the murder, and he would have incentive to falsely implicate Josh Kieser. Again, Abbott testified under oath during the habeas trial that, quote, it would be a lie, unquote, to say in 2008 that he was sure he saw Josh Kieser in the white car at the payphone near the crime scene. These false statements are all very damaging to the murder case and specifically to Josh Kieser. When you have this many falsehoods stacked upon one another with corroborating witnesses who heard confessions plus reconstructionist testimony, I believe there is no chance Abbott was just mistaken when he gave this testimony. I cannot claim to have overwhelming evidence that Mark Abbott delivered the blow that gashed Michelle's scalp or that he pulled the trigger that killed Michelle. But I believe his falsehoods are not mistakes, but lies. I believe beyond a reasonable doubt that he lied to send Josh to prison and to delay justice for Michelle Lawless. I believe the evidence is enormous to convince a jury that Mark Abbott committed perjury when he sent Josh Kieser to prison. Obviously, Abbott has a right to a defense, and a jury must presume his innocence as they weigh the evidence. But my opinion is that a jury would come to the same conclusion regarding perjury that I have. I just think the evidence is overwhelming. We're not talking about one statement. We're talking about a dozen or more. Now let's talk about law enforcement. This one's trickier. Both Bill Farrell and Brenda Shivitz told falsehoods under oath. And the falsehoods were very damaging and material to Josh's conviction. The two primary false statements are one... Mark Abbott was never a suspect. This is despite multiple records claiming otherwise, the most notable having been withheld from the defense. 2. Both testified that all exculpatory evidence had been handed over to the defense. This was later proven to be false. 
Shivitz testified she destroyed her notes from which she prepared her formal reports on the murder investigation. She was directly asked if she kept notes. She said she did take notes, but she threw them away, and the notes did not deviate from the reports that were handed to the defense. This was not true, for two very big reasons. One, a list in her note contained the name Mark Abbott as a suspect during a meeting held early in the investigation. Tom Beardsley had brought up his name. Secondly, clipped to her found notebook was the Wooten report that contained Abbott's identification of Ray Ring in the car at the payphone. These two pieces of information were absolutely critical to Josh's exoneration. It's important to remember that one of these false statements was told in court. The other one was told in a deposition. In my mind, both of these pieces of information would have detracted from Abbott's credibility and might have turned the conviction in Josh's favor. Farrell also testified that all evidence was handed over to the defense. According to Wooten's report, the Ray Ring document that contained his signature was given to the sheriff. In fact, Farrell and patrolman Don Wyndham interviewed Ring one day after the report was written. Farrell knew about the report. He told the court all exculpatory evidence had been given to the defense. The Wooten report was not handed to the defense. Again, that report contained information where the state's key witness, Mark Abbott, identified a mixed-race black man in the car, not Josh Keezer, a pale white man. The two men looked nothing alike. So the statement that all exculpatory evidence was handed over to the defense is a huge falsehood, and it did a lot of damage to Josh Keezer. So was Shivitz's falsehood a lie? Could she have thought that she threw them away and didn't? Did she simply forget that Beardsley brought up his name in that meeting? Did she forget that Beardsley left the department because of what they were doing to Josh Keezer, leaving him twist in the wind, as Beardsley put it? Did she forget those things? Was it a mistake to tell the jury that he was not a suspect at any time? Was it an accident that she told the court her notes were destroyed when they were indeed not destroyed? As for Bill Farrell, did he just forget about that Wooten report? Did he forget that his key witness, Mark Abbott, first said that it was Ray Ring in that car and just forgot to give that document to the defense. Given what we know about Bill Farrell and his secret meetings with Kevin Williams, and allegedly, according to the one report, going with Larry Abbott to Robert Mancillis' house to ask about the missing gun, knowing these details that have come out through the lawless files and, and other means, with all that information, do we think that Bill Farrell simply forgot about that report from Bobby Wooten. Of course, when we're talking about false statements in Kieser's trial, perhaps the most notable was the testimony by Chantel Kreider. She later admitted under oath she was mistaken in her identity. As pointed out earlier in the podcast, she was married at the time to a man who was a drug associate of Mark and Matt Abbott. Claiming she and Michelle were like best friends, Chantel also testified in court she had never seen a picture of Josh Kieser in the newspaper or on the news. I don't have any evidence to contradict that. It just seemed like that was the thing that stuck out to me as not believable. So we've talked a lot about really big false statements made in Josh's case. They played a huge role in his conviction. There are other smaller examples but these are the major ones. So how does all this relate to perjury? Should anyone face consequences? The answer is probably yes. It might surprise you, or at least it did to me, that there are supposed to be serious criminal repercussions for perjury. I figured before doing my research that perjury would probably be a misdemeanor. I figured we'd be past the statute of limitations even. I mean, the trial occurred in 1994, but those assumptions were incorrect. Missouri laws state that perjury in murder cases are a Class A felony. As such, there is no statute of limitation. 
everyone who lied in Josh's original trial is still susceptible to face felony charges. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. I went around the car to the driver's side and opened up the door, and uh, that's when he saw Michelle. So Mark Abbott, suspect in this killing. No, sir, not at the time. Said that his friend might have been a policeman or a sheriff or something like that. I didn't take but a split second. I said, huh, that's not Mark. I said, that's Matt. Mark Abbott nor Matt Abbott were vampire or prey. Why was that not done? So he's like, hey, man, I saw this murder in the news. They don't know who did it. Let's tell them Josh did it. I don't know. I, I don't know that they weren't. It seemed like pretty much anything was for sale down there. I, I don't know. At the right price. He said, uh, you know, he said, Bill's been in there long enough. You know, he's made enough money. He says it's about time a younger man gets in there. He said, like you, you can get in there and make some good Paychecks money. from a bullshit. They never investigated me. They merely put me on trial and told the jury they had. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. So before we get into the meat of this episode, I'm going to read to you the Missouri statute regarding perjury. It's section 575.040, Perjury and Penalties. 1. A person commits the offense of perjury if, with the purpose to deceive, he or she knowingly testifies falsely to any material fact upon oath or affirmation legally administered in any official proceeding before any court public body, notary public, or other officer authorized to administer oaths. Number two, a fact is material regardless of its admissibility under rules of evidence if it could substantially affect or did substantially affect the course or outcome of the cause, matter, or proceeding. Number three, knowledge of the materiality of the statement is not an element of this crime and it is no defense that 1. The person mistakenly believed the fact to be immaterial, or 2. The person was not competent for reasons other than mental disability or immaturity to make the statement. Number 4. It is a defense to a prosecution under subsection 1 of this section that the person retracted the false statement in the course of the official proceeding in which it was made, provided he or she did so before the falsity of the statement was exposed. Statements made in separate hearings at separate stages of the same proceeding, including but not limited to statements made before a grand jury, at a preliminary hearing, at a deposition, or at previous trial, are made in the course of the same proceeding. Number five, the defendant shall have the burden of injecting the issue of retraction under subsection four of this section. Number six, the offense of perjury committed in any proceeding not involving a felony charge is a Class E felony. Number seven, the offense of perjury committed in any proceeding involving a felony charge is a Class D felony unless, one, it is committed during a criminal trial for the purpose of securing the conviction of an accused for any felony except murder, in which case it is a Class B felony, or two, this is the big one here, it is committed during a criminal trial for the purpose of securing the conviction of an accused for murder, in which case it is a Class A felony. So yeah, anyone who lied on the stand in the trial that sent Josh to prison could face a Class A felony, which is the same level of felony as the murder itself. Missouri made perjury a big deal for murder cases. But in the history of the Missouri statute, dating back to the 1970s, not one perjury case from a murder has gone to trial. 
I wanted to talk to a couple of legal experts about perjury and make sure that I was interpreting things correctly. I have no law degree. The text for the statute seems pretty straightforward, I thought, but I know every law is up for ter- interpretation. So I talked to two law professors. The first I talked to was Rodney Uphoff, a legal professor at the University of Missouri Law School. We had some technical difficulties, so I won't be playing any of the interview with him, but he confirmed a lot of the same things that my second expert, Sean O'Brien, told me. So we're going to play this interview with O'Brien, who's a professor at the University of Kansas City, Missouri. O'Brien is a giant in the criminal defense world, having participated in two landmark cases involving exonerations. Before we get into the interview, let me share with you his credentials. This is verbatim from his bio. Professor Sean O'Brien teaches criminal law and procedure and indigent defense clinics at UMKC Law School. He has represented people in death penalty cases across the country since 1983. His Supreme Court cases include Schlupp v. Delo, which set the standard for innocence claims in federal habeas corpus, and Stewart v. Martinez Villarreal, which empowers courts to prevent the execution of insane prisoners. He directed the research and writing of the supplementary guidelines for the mitigation function of defense teams in death penalty cases. He publishes and lectures nationally on death penalty, indigent defense, and related mental health issues. Professor O'Brien has served as Jackson County Public Defender, Executive Director of the Missouri Capital Punishment Resource Center, Chair of the Mo Bar Criminal Law Committee, and President of the Missouri Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. He has been recognized for decades of successful work to free the innocent and prevent unjust executions. In 2016, the Missouri Bar presented him the Spurgeon Smithson Award for Improving Access to Justice. Other recognition for his work on behalf of poor people includes the KCMBA Lifetime Achievement Award, the Jackson County Legal Leaders Award, the LAKC Justice Charles Whitaker Award, Missouri Lawyers Weekly Lawyer of the Year, Northwest Missouri State University's Distinguished Alumni Award, the UMKC Alumni Achievement Award, the NLADA National Sentencing Project Award, UMKC's Daniel Brenner Writing Award, and an Honorary Doctor of Humane Letters degree from Benedictine College. Without further ado, let's get into the interview. Professor O'Brien, thank you so much for for joining us. Um, I'm glad that we have you on uh, today's episode because I wanted to really dive into the idea of consequences for not telling the truth. Obviously, telling the truth is a core tenet of our entire judicial system. We rely on people when they're testifying in cases to tell the truth. They're, you know, sworn under oath. And most of the time, I think, you know, everybody is up there uh, telling, telling their side and telling the truth as they know it. Um, when you look at Josh Keezer's case, there, there are several, you know, clear lies. And when I, when I talk about lies as a journalist, there's a difference between falsehoods and there's a, you know, and, and lies. Lies is, you know, you know what the truth is, yet you give the wrong information anyway. Falsehood could be a mistake. It could be, you know, slip of the tongue or, you know, just said the wrong word. In this case, we know that there were lies. Um, we had false snitches and, and all sorts of things. And we had, um, we have current suspects who placed, uh, who said, you know, who said that Josh was there the night of the murder when he clearly was not and you know, uh, this witness, particular witness, Mark Abbott, is now a suspect in the murder. So as, I'm, as I've gone through this case over a number of years, um, I've often wondered about perjury. And so that's what I wanted to talk to you about today. And so I, I've do, done a little bit of digging into perjury uh, before I had you on, but I wanna make sure that, you know, as a layman, I'm understanding things properly. And uh, so um, hopefully you can help us with that. So as I understand it, it is a crime, perjury, to lie under oath. Um, But as I understand it, the level of potential consequences escalates as do the severity of the crimes. Do I have that right? That's generally true. Although it's not a gradual escalation, it's perjury generally 
And then there's perjury in a murder case. Mm -hmm. And that is set apart from perjury generally. Perjury in a murder case is a class A felony. It's as serious as it gets. Yeah. So class A uh, murder is a class A felony. And so is perjury in a a murder case. Um, So when we're talking class A felonies, what what kind of like prison or, or punishment consequences are we looking at? Uh, in Missouri, if you're convicted of a class A felony, the range of punishment is a minimum of 10 years and a maximum of either 30 years or a life sentence. Um, so the, it's got to be within that range, 10 to 30 years or life. Okay. So, uh, you know, as we're looking at this, obviously the, the lawless case is uh, goes back to 1992. Um can you give us a little history of, of this law? Uh, when was this put into place? And can you kind of give us some context of uh, why it was uh, made into law like this? Um, yeah, the, um, uh, the elevation of perjury in a murder case to a class A felony coincided with the restoration of the death penalty in Missouri. In 1972, the Supreme Court struck down all state murder statutes because uh, the uh, pattern of arbitrary and capricious death sentences was a problem. And so a number of states immediately reenacted death penalty statutes. Missouri was one of them. Um, So in 1977, they enacted a, a statute that called for the death penalty or a sentence of life without parole for 50 years upon conviction of first degree murder. Um, In that same time range, the legislature made perjury in a murder case a class A felony, a perjury to try to get someone convicted of murder is a class A felony. Now, uh, around the same time, I think uh, the concern about bringing back the death penalty were unreliable sentences and uh, wrongful convictions. And so it was seen as a protection against wrongful convictions. Uh, Kind of ironic. It didn't work in every case, obviously. Um, But it wasn't applied just to death penalty cases. It applies to murder cases across the board, both first degree murder and second degree murder. Okay. And so there, um, it's my understanding also that there's no statute of limitations on this. Is that correct? That's uh, exactly right. A uh, prosecution for a class A felony can be commenced at any time. There is no statute of limitations. Okay. All right. So let's talk a little bit about what you would have to prove in order to uh, get a conviction on perjury. Yeah. So the first uh, requirement is that the person has to lie on the witness stand or lie in a deposition at a time when that person is under oath sworn to tell the truth. Um, How do you establish the lie? Uh, You can establish it by circumstantial evidence. Uh, You could establish it by other statements of the same witness in different circumstances that prove that when they were under oath, uh, they lied. Um, Lots of times, Perjury has to be established by circumstantial evidence, but circumstantial evidence isn't unreliable. The example I give the law students is that um, if you have a motorist who claims he was only going 15 miles per hour, or a witness who says, I think the car is going 15 miles an hour, and it left 300 yards of skid marks on dry pavement, you know the circumstantial evidence is more reliable than the testimony, right? Right. So uh, you look at all of the different facts, um, and uh, then uh, you know that can uh, show first of all the statement is a lie. Second, you need to show the individual uttering the statement under oath knew that it was a lie, and then third, you need to show that the statement was material to something at issue in the hearing. Um, So for example, uh, was this person present at the scene of the crime? Well, that might very well be material. Um, Was uh, Josh Keezer present at the scene of the crime? Well, that would be a material falsehood. Um, So it's those three elements, the lie, 
knowing that you told a lie and the lie was important to the outcome of the case at issue? Um, it seems like in the case, at least of, of Mark Abbott, those things could be established. I mean, that's just kind of my opinion here based on what, I, what I've known and come to understand about the case. What about law enforcement? Can, we, can you explain, um, you know, what kind of, are, are there protections for law enforcement or for prosecutors if they lie or, you know, under oath? Yes, uh, there's a doctrine called governmental immunity. It is a holdover from the ancient days when uh, we believe that all law flowed from the king and therefore the king can do no wrong so you could never sue the king or the queen. Uh, that uh, doctrine developed um, at common law and was imported to the United States uh, in common law and in some places by statute uh, but the effect of it is that uh, prosecutors have what we call absolute immunity. You cannot sue a prosecutor for conduct in the official performance of their duties. Um, you know, the, the rationale for it is that we want them to use their best judgment and not fear a lawsuit if they step out on a limb and prosecute a bad guy. We want them to prosecute the bad guy. Mm -hmm. um, and so we give them absolute immunity for discretionary calls like that. Judges are also absolutely immune from lawsuit for what they do. Police officers have a lower level of immunity that is called qualified immunity. Um, we do want them to do what uh, you know, we want them to do their job. There may be times when we want them to step out on a limb a little bit and do their job, but we do not want them to violate the Constitution in the process. And they're more of a ministerial function and less of this discretionary judicial or quasi-judicial officer function. And so police are, police have qualified immunity. And that means they are immune from lawsuit as long as they are operating in a good faith belief that their conduct is lawful. Um, how do you show they acted in bad faith? Well, you just about have to show there is a Supreme Court decision or a law on point that is uh, opposite of what they did, <laughs> you know, that is uh, that they uh, clearly violated and they should have known better than to violate it. But if there's any gray area in the law, the doctrine of immunity means that the prosecute that the the police rather the police always get the benefit of the doubt. Two courts have already either directly or indirectly weighed in on this. Judge Richard Callahan ruled as part of Josh's actual innocence ruling that Josh's constitutional rights were indeed violated when it was discovered that Shivitz's notes had been found and the Ray Ring document were discovered. Remember, Shivitz's notes had the list where Abbott was named as a suspect. And the second one is when Josh later sued the county. And he did so successfully, meaning the court ruled that the qualified immunity was overruled as a defense in Josh's arguments. I asked Professor O'Brien about whether lying about a Brady claim, that's the established case law that the state must hand over all exculpatory evidence, could qualify as the basis for a perjury charge. I also asked him whether statements in court claiming that Abbott was never a suspect might also apply. Would it be harder to establish that law enforcement officials knew that they were lying when they made these false statements? It is a little harder, although, um, for, of course, the prosecutor, absolutely immune. You can't sue yeah. a prosecutor for a Brady violation. Um, <clears throat> police have qualified immunity to a Brady violation, um, which means that um, you can establish liability on the part of a prosecutor if you show that they knew the evidence 
in their possession or that they developed or even that they are aware of is exculpatory and they fail to turn it over um, uh, in, in, under circumstances that its exculpatory value is clear. Now, here's the interesting thing about how the Brady Doctrine interplays with the governmental immunity doctrine. If the law enforcement officer gives the, we call it Brady material, the exculpatory evidence to the prosecutor, then the law enforcement officer has complied with his or her duty under Brady. Uh, law enforcement isn't obliged to turn it over to the defense. They right. can, and when I say law enforcement in this context, I mean the police, the sheriff, the police department. Um, they give it to the prosecutor and their duty is satisfied. Sure. If they don't give it to the prosecutor and they don't give it to the defense, then they may risk their qualified immunity um, right. because they haven't complied with the duty to turn over exculpatory evidence. But, but as it relates, um, sometimes it's pretty clear. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. Um, but as it relates no, to, to perjury, you know, if if officers on the stand lied about witnesses all right, that were indeed considered suspects, but told the jury that they never were considered suspects, and they say, um, we don't have notes about these documents. I threw them away. Okay, so I threw away the notes, and then the notes show that indeed there's a list where that witness is named as a suspect. What do you think about that circumstance? Just not not from a uh, not from a lawsuit standpoint, but from a perjury standpoint. Right, and I'm glad you make that distinction because um, perjury is a criminal charge mm -hmm. and that's and and the governmental immunity doctrine uh doesn't apply to criminal charges so an officer who gives testimony that is false is committing perjury so to say for example uh, the example you gave uh to the jury no this person is not a suspect when in fact you have written a report that lists that person as a suspect um, and if that person is a, a viable alternative suspect to the defense, then you've got all three elements of perjury. You've got the falsehood. You know it's false because this witness is the one who wrote that report, right? Um, and then you've got materiality because it has a bearing on an issue in the case. Right. to ask you this is uh something we haven't um I haven't talked about before but something that i thought you know that i would go ahead and ask you about are you familiar with i'm sure you are the circumstances in which the federal government can become involved in a case there are um kind of some narrowly defined circumstances when the feds can get involved and one of them is that i'm interested in is color of law and I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. The, the, the prosecutor at this point has said, well, well, there's no federal laws that have been violated. But going back to this perjury case, you know, we, if we have um, it documented that perjury is on the table, could that open up the federal government to get involved under the, the color of law? Uh, potentially, I mean, you have federal issue jurisdiction, um, you know, so it's a federal issue. It's a violation of federal law. Um, certainly, 
the victim of that uh, violation would be able to sue in federal court under Section 1983 for a violation of constitutional rights. Uh, so that uh, would be an example of when you could do that. Um, think about the um, U.S. Department of Justice report in Ferguson, Missouri. Um, you know, the DOJ descended on uh, Ferguson and investigated the uh, police department and came up with a bunch of different findings. And it was all based on um, various violations of individual citizens' constitutional rights. And that's what we would be dealing with here. Um, there are a couple of cases, uh, NAPU, N-A-P-U-E versus United States, and then there's Giglio um, uh, versus Illinois. I may transpose those names, Giglio versus United States and NAPU versus Illinois are the cases. Um, and they say that the due process clause is violated when the prosecutor presents perjured testimony. Um, and that would be a perfect example of a federal question jurisdiction. As I've stated before, I'm not an attorney, but more than anything, I'm curious about our judicial system, particularly as it relates to fairness and the tenets of our constitutional protections and criminal trials. And Michelle's case and Josh's conviction had me diving into areas I never really considered before. When I found out that the state of Missouri created a law specifically for perjury and murder cases, I wanted to find other cases, review them, and see how they went about proving perjury. More than 50 people have been exonerated in the state of Missouri. I went searching for previous perjury cases. Missouri's lawmakers intended the law to be tough against those who would lie to wrongly convict a person for murder. But I couldn't find any such case. I figured if anyone would know if such a case existed, I figured it would be Professor O'Brien. Um, I am not aware of any uh, perjury prosecution against a witness where that witness's testimony resulted in a wrongful conviction. Not in, not in Missouri. I'm, I'm just not aware of that. Well, I'm, I'm glad that my research skills aren't trash because I couldn't <laughs> find any either. You couldn't find one either. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I tell you, there are some things that would make it hard for the prosecution to succeed in a case like that. Uh, the, the first and foremost being that that witness's defense is going to be, well, you put me on the witness stand and you're the one who asked me the questions and you're the one who told me what to say. So the prosecutor is in a large way complicit in the perjury. And so how are you going to prosecute that if you're an accessory? You know, yeah. um, And so prosecutors, um, I think it's, it's logistically difficult. So the prosecutor would have to move to appoint a special prosecutor mm -hmm. to do it. Um, yeah. And I've just not seen that done. Yeah. For what it's worth, the other law professor I talked to this one from the University of Missouri, Rodney Uphoff, also said he was not aware of any perjury cases involving murder. And he was even more emphatic in his belief that this is partially because prosecutors are complicit in trying to pull out the information from people who are incentivized by the state to lie. Plus, Professor Uphoff said, a prosecutor's office is juggling many cases all at once and may not have the resources to put into a case that has already been overturned and may damage their office's reputation. This is one reason I wish, if our system is going to have prosecutors elected in a political process, they could talk about issues like this. A question I'd love to ask both candidates in Scott County's Republican primary for prosecutor is, if you were to learn that a police officer lied on the stand to convict someone, would you pursue perjury charges or would you be satisfied if the officer was forced to resign or fired? This goes beyond Josh's case. It happened to another exoneree who I covered, David Robinson, out of Sykeston, Missouri. An officer was shown to have committed perjury in convicting Robinson. The officer denied ever knowing that the real murderer, who had later confessed the crime on audio recording, was ever a suspect in the original Sheila Box murder investigation. When our newspaper published this information, including another police officer's sworn testimony of the lie, 
the city of Sykeston, in a letter to the editor to a different newspaper, called the reporting innuendo. When a judge exonerated Robinson, he called the officer the least credible witness in the entire case. At first, the city of Sykeston moved the officer to the fire division. Eventually, the city forced him to resign. Now that officer works in the Division of Family Services where he investigates abuse cases. Rick Walter also told me about an instance where Tom Beardsley was initially kept off a task force because he refused to lie under oath to protect other officers. This lack of loyalty was deemed more important than telling the truth under oath. But yeah, I could definitely see where I where if I prosecute the case, I'm not going to go back and try to do perjury on that case because yeah, it could <laughs> blow blow up and backfire on me. So that makes a lot yeah. of sense. It could, and it could, and and you know, you've probably heard the thin blue line. You know, police officers stick together on things. Uh, there's a similar uh, cultural phenomenon with prosecutors. It would be difficult to get one prosecutor to prosecute another prosecutor. It has happened but it's really very rare. Um, the two cases I can think of where a prosecutor was prosecuted for suborning perjury um, or misconduct in the course of getting a conviction. Um, one was in Texas and the, as a death penalty case and the prosecutor was required to do weekends in jail. He got convicted I think he pled guilty and ended up serving weekends for a couple of months. Um, and then there was a fellow named Rolando Cruz in Illinois, um, and the police literally made up a confession, um, you know, asked him, to, asked Rolando to imagine uh, if he had dreamed that he was guilty, what would it be? And then they recorded his confession and made it sound like he was confessing when he was really playing this what if game with the police. Um, and those uh detectives were prosecuted for perjury and they were acquitted by the jury. The jury found him not guilty. So it's rare that you see prosecutors actually prosecuted for that. You do see prosecutors being taken to the bar committee for discipline when they do things like this. And in fact, Jackie Spradling in Kansas uh, uh, two or three weeks ago was disbarred for uh, lying to the jury about evidence in a, a criminal prosecution, uh, Dana Chandler. Um, her retrial is scheduled for August, uh, so she got a new trial based on it, but the uh, Kansas Supreme Court uh, referred her to the bar committee because they found no, uh, she had a chance to explain her falsehoods and she really couldn't do it adequately. So she got disbarred. Um, and I know of an Arizona lawyer, a prosecutor who got disbarred in the Ray Crone case, and then a fellow named Nifong in North Carolina uh, was disbarred because he withheld Brady evidence in the Duke Lacoste case. He didn't uh, disclose that there was exonerating DNA testing done in the case. And so, um, so three cases I can think of where prosecutors got disbarred. There may be one or two more, but not very many. Um, there are probably more cases where prosecutors get reprimanded. We'll, we'll put a letter in your file reprimanding you for conduct on becoming a lawyer or, um, you know, maybe even for presenting false testimony in a case. Well, I got you on this. Uh, I, I want to kind of switch gears real quick, just just for a couple minutes. I wanted to talk to you about um, jailhouse informants a little bit. Um, there were several in this case. Um, and they, they came up with a story and they, um, you know, they, they're the ones who said that Josh confessed, though n none of them ever saw anything or whatever. All of them got deals or offers for deals. Um, you know, th this is one of the more common reasons why wrongful convictions happen. Am I right? It is very common. Um, over 25% of the DNA exonerations involve government informants. Um, I class them, I lump them together in what I call incentivized witnesses. They're getting paid either a reward or they're getting consideration in the form of leniency on a pending charge. 
or some other form of consideration in order to testify in a way that helps the prosecutor's case. They're just not, they're just not that credible usually. In this they're case, not, yeah, yeah but juries believe them. I mean, it's, it, it's shocking, but juries do believe them uh, quite often whenever I see an incentivized witness in a case or an informant um, I start looking around for Brady evidence because, you know, if they cut a deal with this fellow, uh, that's Brady evidence because mm -hmm. I can use it to impeach. Yeah. Uh, and uh, quite often they will not disclose the full extent of their deal. Um, so in addition to, um, you know, not prosecuting them on a certain case, there may also be favorable placement in the prison, or there might be transfer, there might be early release, there might be, um, you know, I mean, there can be a lot of different things that uh, police and prosecutors do for somebody they want really badly to testify. Obviously, I've spent a big chunk of this episode talking with Professor O'Brien about whether law enforcement can be charged with perjury. I think that's very important to our constitutional protections and not giving the state the power and authority to lie to take away the freedoms of its citizens. But when it comes to issues involving wrongful convictions, misidentified suspects are a huge reason why they happen. Sometimes it can be as simple as a witness who identifies a person who looks similar to the real culprit. A bigger problem, though, comes from these incentivized witnesses who are willing to testify while years of freedom are dangled before them. So let's circle this back around to perjury. Again, no witness has ever, in the 30-plus year history of the Missouri law, been tried and convicted of perjury in a murder case. It seems like our system is paying no mind to perjury, which means, in my opinion, our system is paying no mind to a pillar of justice, which is the truth. We know jailhouse informants lie. I've seen it happen with at least six jailhouse informants in the two Scott County exonerations alone. What's wild about Josh's case is that the informants tried to come clean before the trial, which would have absolved them from perjury charges, but they were convinced by police to unrecant presumably because the police threaten more charges against them if they change course. I asked O'Brien if he'd ever seen a case like that, with informants trying to recant but being rejected. A fellow who was sentenced to death in St. Louis, a guy named Luther Wells, the informant recanted, um, and the trial lawyer was found ineffective because the informant recanted to the trial attorney, the defense lawyer. And the defense lawyer didn't use it to challenge the informant's testimony, and she was found constitutionally ineffective for that. Wow. Um, so that's one. In Joe Amrine's case, um, the informant, um, one of the informants, recanted like the day after the verdict started right, uh, against Joe, sentencing him to death started writing letters to people saying, I lied to send a guy to death row. Um, and uh, so he made, he signed an affidavit for the defense. Then the prosecution got to him and he came to the hearing on the motion for new trial and said, oh no, that wasn't true. I, he, I did see everything I said I saw. Um, and then, uh, you know, so the death sentence was imposed and then that informant went right back to recanting again. <laughs> so it, oh it's gosh. just an indication of the amount of leverage that police and prosecutors have mm -hmm. over prison and jail inmates. Yeah. You know, we can protect you or we can choose not to protect you. Mm -hmm. We can let you out or we can choose not to let you out. Um, what do you say happened again? <laughs> yeah. This is not the end of my interview with Professor O'Brien. I'll put out another episode where we discuss some consequences for prosecutors. O'Brien is well versed on some of Kenny Holsoff's antics in the courtroom. But for now, I'm going to stop here with the interview and wrap up this episode. This episode has been an eye-opening journey for me. 
clearly, in my view, Mark Abbott has exceeded the threshold for perjury charges. He gave false testimony. He knowingly did so. And he lied about material things that had huge bearing on the case. Josh would not have been convicted without Mark Abbott's identifying him. The snitches also gave false testimony. They also knowingly did so. And they also lied about material things that had huge bearing on the case. Again, Josh Keezer would not have been convicted without their testimony. And when I asked O'Brien, one of the country's leading experts on criminal defense law, specifically about law enforcement's role in this case, he didn't hesitate. Shivitz knew Mark Abbott was a suspect because it was in her own handwriting. Yet she testified otherwise that he wasn't a suspect. No, sir, not at any time. She did not destroy her notes as she testified in a deposition. They were her notes. She knew she did not destroy them. They were material to Josh's defense. In fact, the notes that were not destroyed and not given to the defense have already been deemed constitutional violations by the court. And then there's Bill Farrell in a deposition in the summer of 1993. He was asked about notes and more reports than what the defense was given. This was months after the Ray Ring report was written and handed over to the Sheriff's Department. Attorney Al Lowe's asked, Well, the question is, is there some more records or who do I ask about that? To which Farrell replied, There's not any more records, no sir. Lowe's responds, You've looked over all this paperwork and there ain't no more nowhere that you are aware of. Farrell responds, Unless it's notes that they've got in their personal notebooks and I haven't looked at those so I don't know. Bill Farrell said that the defense had all exculpatory evidence and he knew about that Ray Ring report. It should also be noted, though I don't know if it would be relevant to any perjury case, that Shivitz testified that Farrell called all the shots in terms of whom to interview and which people to send for blood draws and fingerprints. Legislators advocating for the death penalty in Missouri back in the 1970s knew what was at stake in murder trials. They wanted to create a law that would severely punish anyone who might dare to testify falsely in a case that could lead to the death penalty or life in prison, perhaps without the possibility for parole. Josh believes, and I certainly understand why, that law enforcement, Abbott, the snitches, they essentially attempted to murder him. A first-degree murder case, which is what Josh faced, is a capital offense. Death by lethal injection was on the table. Josh's life was at stake. He was fighting for his life. And it was put at stake because several people defamed one of the core pillars of our justice system. And that's the truth. Frankly, I believe, as do the two legal experts I talked to, that perjury is on the table here. And I wonder if Prosecutor Amanda Ash or her predecessor Paul Boyd ever considered it. A perjury charge might not be true justice for Michelle, but it would be for Josh, who's never truly gotten justice either. But perhaps perjury charges against some of these witnesses could shake loose more information and ultimately the truth about Michelle's killers as well. Regardless, perjury in a murder case is a Class A felony. It is such because of the severity of the crime itself. In my opinion, it wasn't just an injustice that was done to Josh. What was done to Josh was criminal. It was, by definition, a lawless trial. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You've been listening to The Lawless Files. Thank you for listening to The Lawless Files, a production of Leadhound Publishing, LLC. The Lawless Files is hosted and edited by Bob Miller and co-produced by Bob Miller and me, Tyler Grafe. Again, please go to thelawlessfiles.com and subscribe.
if you've made it all the way here into the episode, I'd like to say thank you. And I'm going to take a moment to ask for your financial support. This work takes time. It takes money and it takes resources. I do this work because it's a passion, because I find it meaningful and rewarding, even if it's sometimes dark and depressing and maybe even dangerous. I do this for the victims, the families, and for those who have been wronged by our system. If you believe there is value to the work I'm doing and want me to continue, I need your help. If you're listening to The Lawless Files on one of the podcast streaming platforms, that probably means you're not a paid access supporter. Paid supporters can get ad-free listening, plus early bird access to certain episodes, as well as other materials associated with the Michelle Lawless case. If you'd like to see my work continue, please consider paying $36 for a year's worth of benefits with the paid access pass. That averages to just $3 a month, which is a lot less than other media and podcast subscriptions. That's less than $2 per episode. But you can contribute above and beyond a paid subscription by donating any amount on our website at www.thelawlessfiles.com. Our dream is to raise enough revenue to build an investigative team, to do this work as our primary occupation. There are so many cases out there that need work. And unfortunately, traditional media outlets today just aren't getting this job done. We're working hard to bring you important stories about justice. We hope we can continue this work long into the future. We can't do it without your support. Again, go to thelawlessfiles.com and look for the Become a Supporter button at the top of the page. Thank you for listening to The Lawless Files. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.